Welcome to Apollo's Muses, the COVID culture and cash series. Hi everybody, welcome to episode nine of COVID culture and cash. I hope wherever you are in the world uh, listening to this, I hope you're doing really well. My name is David Burgess. I run Apollo Fundraising here in the UK. And through this series of podcasts, we've been sharing stories of how the arts fundraising sector has responded to the coronavirus pandemic. In today's episode, I'm talking to Anna Vaughan. I first met Anna over 10 years ago when she was working as head of trusts at the National Theatre. Since then, Anna's founded Glow Fundraising and as a consultant has worked with arts and culture organisations of all shapes and sizes, uh, with a particular focus on supporting theatres. Anna is also chair of the Institute of Fundraising's Cultural Sector Network that supports arts and culture fundraisers here in the UK. It gives her a really great oversight of what's happening across the sector. So I was really keen to get her thoughts on how the sector has responded to coronavirus, what we've done well, what lessons we might learn, and what she thinks the future of arts fundraising looks like. Morning, Anna. How are you? I'm fine, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. I'm enjoying Good. this warmer weather that's that's come back. Oh, yeah, me too. Do you want to say a bit about yourself for people that, that might not have met you before? So who you are, what you do? Well, David and I know each other because I'm chair of the Institute of Fundraising's uh, Cultural Sector Network, um, which is um, a network of fundraising volunteers in the cultural sector across the UK. But that's a volunteer role. Um, mainly, I've been working in the arts industry now for ooh, around 19 years. I started my career off at the National Theatre, where I was head of trust for about nine of the 10 years I was there. After that, I became director of development at Youth Music Theatre UK, which is now called the British Youth Music Theatre, uh, which is an Arts Council NPO youth music organisation. That charity uh, found Ed Sheeran and Sam Smith, as an example. Um, I was there for 18 months. And then in 2015, I set up my own consultancy, Glow Fundraising, kicked off my consultancy role, helping to raise £4 million for the Bush Theatre for their capital campaign, went to the Kiln Theatre and closed their capital campaign, raising the final million pounds. And then I've helped charities, um, large and small actually. So I've worked for Sadler's Wells, um, Hoxton Hall, Curious Directive, 1927, um, and Clips Theatre Company and Tallower, just to name a few. So they're all arts organisations and mainly theatres essentially. You mentioned quite a few theatres that have either been in the news or we, we know have been, been really hard, hard hit. I mean, this must be devastating to watch sort of what's happening at the moment with those organisations that you know so well and, and, and love. Yes, it is. It's a particularly difficult time for theatre, I'd say. I, I know from the organisations I've worked for that they've had to cancel my contracts because they haven't been able to afford a fundraising consultant, for example. I also know some theatres have had to furlough staff who are you know, have fundraising as part of their jobs. You know, a lot of small theatre companies don't have the space to have a full-time fundraiser. So a lot of companies rely on their administrative staff or even the chief executive to do their fundraising. And I know from my industry experience that some some of those people, even some of the chief executives have been furloughed. So so it is a really tough time for the industry. Yeah, it's, it's challenging if the main people in the organisation have had their hours reduced or their staff withdrawn. It's, it's yeah. It's, the industry is facing a very tough time. Mm. Of course, the recent announcement from Arts Council England and DCMS that there is going to be an injection of some money is, is a good thing, but that will only cover buildings, really. I'm not sure it's going to cover, cover staff particularly. Yeah, they seem to be really focusing on institutions and, as you say, venues rather than things to go in those venues. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that pans out. Yeah. And can completely empathise in terms of seeing work cut and work, work put on pause as organisations, I think, just sort of come to terms with it. So yeah. what has lockdown looked like for you? What are the inquiries that you, you've had from organisations and the things that, that your clients have been working on o- over these last three months? Yeah, well, it's, it's not all bad news, um, <laughs> I have to say. I'm a trustee of the Yard Theatre, for example, and 
they have recently done a successful uh, big give campaign uh, just saying that they you know they they're facing difficult times and people have been very generous towards towards them um, do you want to just say a bit about the big give just in case anyone's yeah sure um well big give are uh, basically provide match funds for charities uh, so what you need to do as a charity is apply to to become registered with the big give but then once you've registered and they've approved you, what they do is then, then agree to match fund uh, what the total you want to raise, essentially, which is really good incentive, I think, for, for donors to give money because it means they double their donations, which is great. And usually they do that around Christmas, but I, I, I think they, they launched a campaign, particularly now, to, to support arts charities, which is great. And I know, obviously, with the Christmas challenge, you normally have to find some of the match funding as well to, to build up that, that pledge pot. Was that the case this time? Uh, and if so, how did they find that message going out to supporters? Were people receptive to that? Yes, they seem to be. I mean, certainly the first thing they did was ask the trustee board to help them, which is always a good first port of call. Um, all of all of the trustees, I think, as far as I know, we all, we all pledged a little bit of money, uh, what we could, towards the campaign. Obviously, we then all tweeted about it and promoted it um, as a trustee board. So that's always a good tip. If uh, you've got trustees, make sure they're involved and promoting it to, to, to their friends and, and people they know. But it seemed to have a really good response from the audiences as well. So they mailed it out to their mailing list. They also tweeted about it and put it on all of their social media channels. And uh, their audience responded in a really great way to it. So that was really positive. Fantastic. Just while we're on, on that topic then, have you got any tips for organisations who struggle to get their board engaged in fundraising? Because that, I mean, it sounds like they're the whole board were behind this. Everyone sort of understood their role a little bit and, and what they needed to do. But yeah. obviously that's not always the case. Well, the one thing I've, in my consultancy life, certainly I've come across quite a few charities who either don't have a fundraiser on their board or their board aren't really receptive to fundraising because they think, well, I'm on the board, I don't need to give, or I don't need to do anything about fundraising because I'm volunteering my time, so that's what I give. So what I've suggested to those charities are two things, really. Firstly, try and get somebody who is a fundraiser on your board for a start because they will then support the staff in providing those structured fundraising messages to the rest of the board. But also, if, you, if needs be, you know, see if you can find a new chair or new members of your board who will support fundraising, uh, ideally. I suppose the, the other thing you can do is, is patiently sit down with your board and explain to them the whys behind why you need money. I've, I've certainly done that uh, when I was um, Director of Development at Youth Music Theatre UK. I actually sat down with each and every member of the board and just patiently explained to them why um, I gave because I, I was actually a board member at the time on, a, on another charity so I explained why I gave on that charity and really my reason was unless you give yourself you can't expect other people to give you can't expect to ask other people for money if you don't have an experience of giving money to the charity yourself um, so as I was already a board member somewhere else I felt I could say that almost peer-to-peer -to, -peer to my mm. board members to say look I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who is a board member for another charity and I'm able to say that I give what I can. I'm not suggesting that you give a major donation at all, but I gave the, the example that I'd given £25 because I was a young fundraiser at the time to, to that charity. But that was enough to mean that I, I knew what it was to give money to that charity. And I wasn't necessarily pressurising anyone into giving a, a major donation, but it was just the principle of it, really. So that's a good, good way to start. Obviously, uh, £25 isn't going to get an organisation very far. Um, so for those that are potential major donors, um, you need to treat that conversation a little bit differently, I guess, in, in saying, well, how could you help us? You know, these are the kind of gifts we're looking for and, you know, approach it more like you would uh, a major donor meeting, I guess. Um, so that's about doing your research, really, before you go and speak to your board members. So you mentioned the, the Big Give Challenge there. What are some of the other things then that you've been working on over the last few months or, or some of the other things organisations have been coming to you saying, this is where we're focusing and we, we need some help? Yeah, well, what I've noticed is quite a few organisations have been quite shy to ask it's not you know just particular to the arts but certainly a lot of my arts clients have been saying to me it's not the right time to ask is it we we shouldn't really be asking for money um because healthcare needs it more what i've been saying back is that certainly from my major gifts experience at the national theater i know that my major donors had enough money on their wallets not only to support healthcare but also to support our 
work at the National Theatre, all the arts that they loved and were close to. And what I always say to people really from that experience is, is something that a donor said to me. Um, they said they feel they ought to give to healthcare charities, whereas they feel their love is for the arts. And I think that's what we can take into our minds as arts fundraisers, that you're not um, an evil person taking away money from the healthcare sector. People will always give to the healthcare sector. I mean, I'm a good example of that, really. My my mum died of motor neuron disease, and I regularly give to um, the MND Society as a result. But that doesn't stop me from giving money at a small level to the theatres that I love and would hate to see closed down. So I think that's a good live example of it but i certainly know that for major donors that's that's the same case that they will absolutely give to cancer charities and in these times they will give to emergency funding for covid uh, relief absolutely but that's not to say there's not room for us to do a sensitive ask i'm not saying that you say our cause is more urgent than than healthcare but certainly what i'm encouraging people to do is be absolutely honest about your situation if you can see on your on your balance sheet that you're only going to survive the next three months then say that um, because donors really want to know that they if they if they need to lobby the government or give you money or help in any way they can they will um, and certainly i went to a zoom meeting at the kiln theater and one of the donors said exactly that she said let me know what i can do not only financially but also can i write to the government can i ensure that your organization doesn't close so just reach out to your donors talk to them if you do have a constituency of donors around your organization make sure you know you communicate what's happening to your organization as honestly as possible without sounding completely desperate and hopeless and also making sure that they they understand the position you're in really and and can offer the help and advice that that you need have you seen examples of, of where it's sort of gone to either extreme? So, so we talk about that, that shyness and people saying, yeah, this isn't the right time, it's not appropriate. But it also feels like some organisations actually have gone, got much better at expressing their need, far better than they were prior to COVID. Do you think that's a, that's a fair comment? Yes, I think so. I mean, one example, I went to the uh, online fundraising convention last week that the Institute of Fundraising did and, and they are now doing more art sessions within the Institute of Fundraising convention which is fantastic to see. One great example I saw there was the Wordsworth Trust who were saying that they're a tiny organisation um, not based in London and they were, were wondering how they were going to get a fundraising message out and were slightly nervous to approach their donors but two things happened. Firstly, they were in the middle of a capital campaign, which they had to stall. So they, they had to communicate to their donors because, you know, they, they were due to reopen and they couldn't. So they had to find a creative way to communicate with their donors and, and tell them what was happening. Also, their patron is Prince Charles, uh, which I know doesn't happen for every organisation, but bear with me. And he read Tintangel Abbey on Radio 4 to celebrate Wordsworth's life and to, set, to tell people about the plans for reopening when Dove Cottage can reopen. And actually, not only through that promotion, but other um, things that they've done. So for example, one of the events they broadcast online was uh, they had an actress dressed up in costume for that period. And she was being served in the home the kind of things that Wordsworth would be served. And one of the things he liked was Twining's tea. So they got Twining's tea to deliver some tea to her and pour out some tea. And it was just, uh, you know, something that they could, they could do to encourage, you know, that's something they could have, they could put on social media and, and just encourage and chat about really. Um, but, but as a result, they found that people were not only giving to them in their local area, but internationally. So the ability to put that online meant that they got donations from Australia, New Zealand, America, places where people knew about Wordsworth, were passionate about it, maybe had come to Dove Cottage as a tourist and loved it and were reminded of it on social media. So that was a really interesting um, and positive example of 
when people saw that something they loved was under threat, they thought, well, how can, how can I help regardless of how, however far away I am? So I thought that was a really nice example of their inventiveness as a charity to say, well, we can't invite people in to see this, but could we put that video online? And also using, I mean, they had Prince Charles as an example, using somebody to promote their charity. But, it, but I always say to charities, who have you got who mm. could promote your charity within your realm? So it might not be somebody as, <laughs> as, as well known as Prince Charles, but, but especially in the arts, we have a lot of famous actors and uh, curators and even the people that benefit from our work. Mm. So for example, Ed Sheeran, who benefited from the work we did at Youth Music Theatre UK. And it's about knowing the right way to ask those people, not over asking them, but asking them maybe for a very specific thing. So with Ed at uh, Youth Music Theatre UK, we said to him, could you just do one video for us for fundraising backstage at your concert? We'll come with the crew, we'll film you. You don't have to do anything just before your show because you're out anyway. And he agreed because that was easy for him. Mm. We offered the cameras, he just had to speak. and. So and I think there are ways we could do that in lockdown still that, that could promote fundraising opportunities and also promote the, the uh, charity itself, which of course we all know is very important for fundraising. PR and fundraising go hand in hand, really. So if we look back over the last three months, however long it's been, <laughs> lose track now. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. <laughs> back to when we were at the Institute of Fundraising Culture Cultural Sector Network Conference. Which I think was the last event anyone was ever able to hold. <laughs> the last, the last the time world. we were able to be in a room with, uh, with more than six people. Yes, exactly. But looking back over, over that time, how do you think the, the arts fundraising sector has responded? What are the things you think the sector has done really well? What are the things we might look back on saying, you know what, we might have done that differently, we might have approached that in a different way? What's your end of project report? Yeah, I think... I think certainly for the organization, and this doesn't apply to all organizations, because I know not all organizations, particularly small ones, have a cohort of donors. They might just have a cohort of board members who they need to keep in touch with. So I'm very mindful of small charities because I work for a lot of them. But for those who have got major donors, it seems that a lot of arts charities set up to do major donor work have excelled at it. And that's like, that, I think, is what we do really well in the arts. You know, perhaps we're not quite as successful as direct mail and, and the lower level types of giving in in the arts simply because we may not have the constituencies of a big charity you know especially if we're a small organization but certainly those that have been speaking about their um, major donor interactions they've been able to do that really well so for example orchestras and museums actually have brought on board curators and musicians in a way that perhaps they couldn't have done before so it might be that at a fundraising event, the musician gets to speak a little bit, but then the event is taken up with seeing a concert or having a dinner or speaking to the artistic director. But I think what arts organisations have done, and those that have done it successfully, have got a curator to actually manage the Zoom session. So they are in charge of it. They run it. They um, provide the content and entertainment for the donors. And I think for the donors, that's quite refreshing because it's not a fundraiser might be in attendance, but it's not so obviously stage managed, I suppose. And I, I think as fundraisers, I, I certainly was always conscious at the National Theatre that I didn't want to make things look like I was going around poking the actors to speak to people, you know, because it can sometimes look like that at fundraising events. And I think what Zoom has allowed and other platforms which are available um, have allowed is that ability to really put your donors face to face with somebody who really knows their area of work and really talk in depth about it and also that means that you learn more about your donors in turn because your donors might then phone you up and say that was wonderful i don't know whether you know but i was com i completely love violins or you know they, they might come come to you with uh, a particular you know i played a violin as a child and i've always been interested in this violinist and and you unlock something that a donor may not have told you before. So certainly there are examples of that where fundraisers have got to know their donors a little bit 
more than they would have done before. And also the other thing that major gift fundraisers have noticed is that donors have more time on their hands. So they've been able to utilize that time with their major donors really well. I think on the other side of things, I think where we possibly historically struggle as the arts, and again, this is really through conference sessions that I've attended with the Institute of Fundraising, is I think we really struggle digitally and online in terms of perhaps putting the budget behind websites, putting the budget behind data capture, putting the budget behind making sure the donor journey is right online. Um, and I don't know how we do that without the sort of budget that Friends of the Earth have, for example. You know, Friends of the Earth is one of the best examples I've seen as a normal layperson. Um, I follow them on Instagram and they've managed to get my email address from me. They've managed to persuade me to sign petitions. And my next thought was, I really must give them some money because they've engaged me so much and I'm so clued up now with their cause, I really now feel obliged to give them money in a way that I didn't before. And obviously, Friends of the Earth have got a very, very important environmental cause, the destruction of the planet. That is something that the arts possibly can't address. But I do feel because people do love the arts, we really need to put more energy into looking at the donor journey online. And I don't have any great solutions to that, but I think one solution is talking to people like Friends of the Earth and agencies that are specialists in that and working out how those donor journeys might happen for, for mm -hmm. the arts. And, and I'm speaking from the point of view of somebody who does look at a lot of arts websites and notices that fundraising isn't necessarily top and priority on every website I go to, I suppose. I don't know what your experience of that is, David. Well, so I was going to ask you, and you mentioned that idea of priority when it comes to arts. Do you think part of that is we still view audiences and donors as being two separate groups? There's a challenge of saying, actually, it is the same audience. Yeah. And, and trying to, to link that up so it's, it's, it's one journey that Def way rather than viewing them as two different things. Definitely. I think because we don't have a history, you know, in, in major charities, there are direct marketers who are fundraisers. Mm. And I think in the arts industry, we're almost in danger as fundraisers as telling, of telling marketing professionals how to do their job. And that's not what we're trying to do. But there are certainly differences between trying to communicate with audiences and selling them tickets and trying to make sure that someone has a satisfactory donor journey on a website and i think therein lies the struggle because we don't really have any professional direct marketers on fundraising teams in the arts who could then speak marketing language to a marketing department and if then the fundraisers try to do that it seems like we're treading on people's toes, I think. And I think you're right that we do view there's a, there's a pool of donors over here and there's a pool of audience members over here that we sell tickets to. And we need to try and bring those two audiences in line with each other, really, because mm. that's where fundraisers get their information from, particularly for, for organisations that have a database where you can see who's coming into your theatre. I know touring companies, for example, won't have that data and are very envious of the fact that, you know, venues have data to, to mine. Um, but certainly for venues that, that have that data, I think there's more that could be done there, really. Um, and I'm no expert, so I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not one to, uh, to, to know that, but certainly I think one of the solutions could be making more use of the wider charity sector and their expertise mm -hmm. on that particular, particular issue. And are there charities or organisations you've seen within the arts sector that you think actually are bucking the trends there and, and are doing particularly well? Um, I think, I mean, not that I'm biased, but I will come back to the Yard Theatre because I'm a trustee there. But I think what was interesting uh, for the Yard was the way in which they delivered an online festival 
and the online festival actually ask you for a donation to support the festival in its operation. So the message to audiences was a donation up front to come to the festival, which I think was starting to marry those two things together, that we can't do this festival without your support, essentially. Um, and that festival, unlike some theatre companies have been doing, which is admirable, uh, the National Theatre sharing their archive of, of performances, absolutely brilliant, asking for a donation at the end, absolutely brilliant idea. But The Yard actually did a live performance. So the festival started at 12 with uh, an online town hall debate about the status of theatre. And it then they then programmed a show that had just been in their theatre, but the actor did it from his home. And it was interactive and members of the Zoom audience were interacting with the actor. I knew they were planted actors, but uh, my husband didn't. And he said, how come those people are talking to the actor? And I was like, oh, well, they're just a bit weird, you know, they're just interjecting things. But they were, they were planted actors and it worked exceptionally well. I, I guess that there was more room to have asked for donations more in the day with that but I think it comes back to fundraisers can't just be relied on to make up fundraising content to keep donors happy the actual content of the organization has to be innovative in order to get people to donate that's why I think that's a good example because they are marrying up their content with an ask and I think that there probably needs to be more innovation in the coming months if theatres can't reopen then what can we do in the digital realm that goes into innovation but also attaches fundraising to it mm. so donors see arts companies being as innovative as they are on stage usually or in art usually and ensure that fundraising is married up with that and and in tandem with that and 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 the ask is we can't do this digital work without you essentially and it's bringing some of that creativity and, and innovation to the way we ask as well isn't it rather than just sort of slapping up a screen at the end perhaps thinking a bit more imaginatively and it, it sounds like in in the yard theater example that need to ask for donations was, was sort of built in from the start and it was, it was. It was and, a and, sort of add-on. And how you entered the website was exciting. So you entered, it, it said you can't come to the yard and you entered on a map of the yard and you could tour around the map and you could wander to the kitchen and see what the kitchen were doing and you could wander to the auditorium and see what was going on in the auditorium. And it was just a very clever, engaging website. And that made you want to donate because you were enjoying the content so much that you thought you should really pay for it. And that's, and I think that's the situation we need to get to with, with other arts events, really, that people feel obliged to give because the content's so good and the content is, is so relevant. I mean, I know, and I know this is a struggle. I'm not saying that, that it'll be easy. Um, the Times reported this week that the National Theatre had raised around 20p per view for the National Theatre Live productions that they've been doing. If you average it out over all of the performances, it worked out at about £320,000. That's published in the press. The National Theatre may have an updated figure on that. But it still suggests that we've got a long way to go before our audiences appreciate that they need to pay for the art that's on our screens. And I think it's the responsibility of both fundraisers and content producers to speak as one on that, really, because we can't continually offer a free art, otherwise art won't exist. So, and how, how do we monetize that? And that is a huge question for the industry, I think. Yeah, I think a massive question. I mean, 20p per view sounds like a small amount, but compared to the average spend per visitor in a museum, for example, obviously that's a, a significant increase. So it, it does show that donations alone is probably not going to going to solve this problem no exactly so i mean we've started thinking about about the future so so what do you think arts fundraising looks like now for the next 
six to 12 months. And what are the kind of things you're advising your clients to consider and to start putting in place? Well, I think I'd say that keeping the people who give money to you first and foremost engaged is very, very important. You can't forget the people who have have got you to this point. It's also worth exploring new donors. But I think in these times, it would be a really good idea to concentrate on making your case for support as, as robust as possible, really, because going to new donors will require you to have a very, very good argument as to why they should give to you over another organisation. And I think unless you have a robust case in the next six months, there will be increased competition from healthcare charities, increased competition from other charities that are still struggling throughout this lockdown. So I think we could use this time really to to keep hold of our donors that give to us and hopefully encourage them to give more and also start planning to to engage with new donors but in that planning have a really really robust case about why you require the funds really Um, and that that includes being honest about your current situation like I said but also trying to envisage the future no matter how difficult that is Mm. trying to envisage what is your organization going to be able to put on next year what exhibition what production what musical piece who who have you got in your thoughts for commissioning and that is so difficult for arts organizations to think about at the moment because they're trying to survive but there does still need to be some visionary thought for people to be inspired to give i think um, and in that visionary thought, do you think do you think that provides a space or perhaps even a need then for organisations to reconsider why they're there, what their overarching vision and mission is, and perhaps come up with a slightly more tightly defined view of of, of their role, what it is that they're there to do? Yes, I mean, I'm hoping we've got beyond the argument that the arts isn't essential because I think we have found in lockdown the arts is essential I don't know anyone who hasn't listened to music or watched television or watched a film or streamed some content um, from an arts organization the arts affect many many people's lives in a very very positive way but I do think there is an argument for the arts to really show their social value And what I mean by social value is who do you help? Who do you move? Who are the people that will be really impacted by your work? And having the evidence to show to donors, um, I think, you know, looking into the future, donors will be more demanding about the impact we have on people. And it's just about measuring that in a way that donors can understand. So an example of that might be the impact you've had in the local area because over this time you've given up. um, I know one organisation gave up some of their buildings to help local doctors to to have somewhere to stay overnight so they didn't have to travel home uh, because their organisation was nearer a hospital. Or if your kitchen has been delivering food to people which I know some arts organizations have have transformed their kitchen services to provide meals to the local community but also of course that's just in these times but generally the arts helps people in very difficult circumstances at the National Theatre we did extensive work with young children who had never seen theatre before Um, and to say it changed their, it, it not only changed their lives, but changed their educational attainment. And we were able to do a report with an, the Institute of Education that showed that the impact that the National Theatre's work, primary school's work, had on those primary school's children compared to children who didn't engage, um, improved their English, improved their maths, improved their confidence at school. 
so that was really important but also an organization i'm working with at the moment um a cava who are an arts organization um, a visual arts organization they have been helping residents of grenfell the grenfell tower fire with art sessions they've been creating a mosaic that adds a leaf and a petal each year after the grenfell disaster and the community have made that and they've um, secured funding from NHS Mental Health because they have a huge impact on people's mental health whilst delivering art sessions. And it really is therapy for people. It really is making people not dwell on traumatic times, ensuring that they can have something in their lives which is joyful and something that they can take away from a workshop and make at home they can take those skills away with them and one of the case studies that i saw there was uh, a lady who'd walked past an art workshop that was just outside grenfell tower and she saw all of the art tables out with supplies out and her little boy had been very reluctant to do anything since the fire understandably and um she was encouraged in to to, to do an art workshop and she said it was the first time her son had shown any enthusiasm for anything and he sat there you know working on this piece of artwork and she said it it made her relax because she felt that there was some benefit for her son and they've gone back every week since and she now does art in her spare time and she said the impact on their mental health as a family has been incredible so i do think there's more probably more partnerships we could do with the, the nhs with um other charities who are delivering particularly social well-being work particularly work with vulnerable communities who need diversions and need strengthening in their lives from something that is is joyous and artistic and and entertaining and it's really interesting what you say in terms of being able to access that mental health funding and the fact that arts have played a central role throughout lockdown in providing that, that relief, that chance to connect with, with other communities. Do you think things would have been different then if the sector had come together to really make that case maybe a, a couple of months ago? I'm not saying to the point where people would have been clapping for for artists and arts <laughs> organizations on every every thursday evening but just sort of say actually we've played an important part too and done that with one voice yeah i think i think maybe that's what we could be doing now i suspect in the early days a lot of organizations that weren't healthcare organizations even friends of the earth for example we're facing the worst environmental disaster that human beings have ever faced and mm. even friends of the earth said they didn't feel it was an appropriate time to really push for donations at the start of, of the COVID crisis. So there's a real balance, I think, uh, to be struck because you don't want to be seen to be sort of demolishing the case for other really meaningful and important work. But I do think if, if arts organisations have been delivering that sort of work, now is the time to start sharing the case studies you've got from that impact you've had on on the community and that could be built into your future strategy for fundraising but also for making sure that you're delivering your charitable objects essentially and you know i think there's still potential for more partnerships to be done with the arts sector and the charity sector but i appreciate that partnerships even within the arts are difficult and you know trying to partner across charities i think would be even more challenging but there are are good examples of that there's been a lot of talk about developing the new normal uh, so as chair of the iof culture committee i mean you already wield a lot of power across the sector anyway but if we <laughs> elevate that even further and give you complete control over arts fundraising right. 
what what are the changes you you would make? What are the things that if you completely wrote the rules, we'd start seeing more of? What would we see less of? What would that world look like? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying about show off what we're good at. We're we're excellent at major gifts fundraising, and I think that's something that we we could definitely share with other charity sectors. We should be very proud of what we do in the cultural sector to look after our donors i think so i wouldn't change that uh, all i would say is that we need to be much more bold in our confidence i suppose in in sharing those case studies and and that work that we do very well in the sector but i think i think really we have to be mindful of the audiences that are coming up the donors that we have as organisations at the moment aren't going to be the donors of the future. And if we're not tied in with the mindset of younger donors in particular, I think there could be opportunities that are lost to us as an art sector. And that goes for the art as well as fundraising appeals, really. But I think that's where digital comes in. Um, and I think we do need to be much more savvy about how we, you know, appear on Instagram, social media, Twitter, Facebook. I'm not saying that that's the only place that young people look. Of course it isn't. Um, and, and actually, some recent data shows that um, particularly in these times, the boomer generation, which, you know, are, are older generations, actually are using Amazon and Facebook and those kind of uh, applications a hell of a lot more since lockdown because their children and grandchildren have been teaching them how it all works and, and, and they're, they're loving it. But I think there is a threat to the arts and all fundraising really that if we don't engage the next generation, how are we going to ensure the philanthropy of the future and I think we probably need to I know that fundraising is urgent at the moment because of the state the cultural sector is in but again using this time to think strategically about what the future might look like I think the future donors um, and the future philanthropists need to be really thought very carefully about um, in terms of what would appeal to them and what marketing data is showing in terms of the trends of their choices and um, and their decision making, essentially. And do you have a sense of, of what some of those trends or what some of those differences might look like? Well, certainly from last week's Institute of Fundraising convention, the wisdom coming from more than one charity sector representative was that choice will be very very important to people in future and we already see this really in trends of anything online you know i mean if you just look at deliveroo i think deliveroo is a you know that's got choice written all over it hasn't it really i mean i just look at deliveroo as a 40 something and think i don't know i don't know what to choose so i'm not going to choose anything but it obviously works very well for, <laughs> for other people. And I think choice is, is going to be one of the key things that people will be looking for, choosing which charities to support, because we know that the next generation is philanthropically minded and are passionate about causes. So we haven't lost that in the next generation that, that's coming up. But certainly I think there'll be probably quite savvy. We might not have donors that keep donating to us year on year. So we need to make sure that we are keeping them as engaged as possible and keeping our work as innovative as possible. So they want to keep giving to us, but also giving them choice in maybe that they could come back to us in a year's time, that they could give to us one year and partner with another organization that they could give to another year. So there might be different models of fundraising that we need to align ourselves with in order to make sure 
we're appealing to that that generation who have just been used to just having the world at their feet and the right things being there for them you know and that's something that's I was born in 1978 that's certainly something that I haven't had in my life um and we need to employ younger fundraisers as well who will understand that culture as well because I'm not that old but I would probably be quite hopeless at trying to arrange a strategy for younger people I mean even talking there's probably young people watching this going what the hell is she talking about but I think we need to engage with a younger generation of fundraisers who understand that generation who understand what the trends might be and understand this digital world that is is ahead of us all fantastic a huge amount to, to think about there and be really interesting to see how that's how that develops as we move into this next phase of of coronavirus before i let you go a question we've been asking everyone what are the things during lockdown that have been bringing you joy and what are the things you hope will continue once coronavirus is, is past us <laughs> well to have a lot of streamed arts opportunities i think has been wonderful i've actually shamefully never been to the hay festival uh in wales i've never got there i've always wanted to go and i was absolutely delighted to watch the hay festival from my sofa um uh, over two weeks it was just phenomenal you know to see writers like margaret atwood and yotamoto lenge um a whole load of people who i wouldn't even engage with before i saw that was online and that was that was absolutely superb and another example um the british museum launched a uh, an online timeline essentially that you can explore all of their uh, collection on or some of their collection i i guess it wouldn't cover quite all their collection but um it's it's a really excellent way to absorb yourself if you're a history geek like i am in in many hours of looking at objects from the British Museum wherever you are in the world, which is which is fantastic. Um, so I think um, I think that's been great that there has been culture online to digest. What will I miss? Um, I don't know, miss, miss not having to commute, I think. Um, I work from home quite a lot, but, you know, having meetings all the time, you end up traveling quite mm. a lot. Um, and I think I've quite liked the peace and quiet um, of, of not of not needing to do that. Um, so, so I'm going to suggest Zoom meetings going forwards. I think really. <laughs> I think they're here to stay, aren't they? <laughs> I think they are. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time this morning to chat to us, Anna. Not really at all. Appreciate it's a pleasure. that. And it's a real look forward to well seeing where we go in terms of the cultural sector network as well and we'll, yeah, we'll make sure there's a link to that and the upcoming events uh, on the podcast page as well great thank you david massive thanks to anna for giving up her time and taking part in today's episode i always love chatting to anna and really enjoyed today's conversation Anna shared loads of great tips and advice there. I suspect her thoughts on getting boards to engage with fundraising will have resonated with a lot of people. I think one of the things that really stuck in my mind was the anecdote Anna shared quite early on from the donor, who talks about their experience of giving to health as being driven by a sense of obligation, a sense of duty at this time, whereas their gifts to arts organisations was much more driven by love and by that sense of enjoyment. And I thought that was a really eloquent way of, of summing up those different motivations. And I think it leads to other considerations for us. There's consideration around then how we present that message at this time and what motivation, what need we're tapping into when we're asking people to support the arts during this pandemic. I think it poses a really interesting question about how donors account for this in terms of their own mental budgeting. Those things combined should help us to see actually we're not really in competition with health causes at this time. And as Anna said, it's not evil to ask for money for the arts and culture sector during this pandemic. 
both of those causes are helping donors to meet very different needs. Anna also talked about the importance of focusing our time and efforts on getting our message to people who already care about what we do, even if they're not necessarily already engaged with our organisations. That means proactively finding routes to those audiences and crafting messages that we think are most likely to appeal to those audiences. But as Anna's Wordsworth Trust example shows, it also means being awake and alert to possible opportunities that might arise out of the blue, even if we don't have Prince Charles as our patron. And finally, I completely agree with Anna's call to organisations to spend more time and invest more thought in planning the type of experience they want their online supporters to have and to think really carefully about what role that touchpoint plays in a longer term relationship. And I think at the moment so many of these decisions are based on what's free, what works with our existing CRM system, what can we implement in-house without external thought, and treating the online donation platform effectively just as a money box or as a, any other kind of donation box without really thinking about that experience holistically. We know people are, are going to be less likely to use cash. We know that for a lot of organisations, digital and online channels are just going to be how we're engaging with our audiences at the moment. And that includes for fundraising. It's absolutely in our best interest to think about how we can give supporters the best experience possible when they're donating online, while also thinking about what we need to give ourselves the best chance of taking that relationship forward in the future. And then thinking about the processes and systems that we need in place to be able to deliver those things. And for a lot of organisations, that is going to mean thinking about how we fit fundraising in around our online and digital artistic work. Finally, I'm grateful to Anna for sharing that reminder that through lockdown, we've seen just how important arts and culture has been to our community and to our society. And I hope that that can provide a rallying call and a source of hope as we try and navigate the difficult times ahead of us. That's it for this episode. I hope you found it useful. I've got some great speakers in mind for future episodes, but I'm also aware there's a huge amount going on across the sector that I just have absolutely no idea about. So if you've got a story to tell about how you've been approaching fundraising during this time, or if you've got an interesting perspective over how the sector's responded to coronavirus or what you think might come next, I'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. You can email me at david.burgess at apollofundraising.com or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at davidburgessfr. I'd love to chat and would love to get you on as a guest in future. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Huge thanks again to Anna for sharing her thoughts, her wonderful knowledge and her time this morning. And I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.